Well, good morning. morning. Just want to thank you guys so much for having me. Um, As Jacob said, my name is Jordan Hecox. I uh, live in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Lord willing, here in about six months, I'm going to be planting a church down in Mankato. So just thrilled to be here and to be able to preach to you here this morning. Um, What a joy to just see the work of the gospel happening here in Monticello. This is a gift. Um, I'm looking out and and hoping that the Lord might be pleased to do something similar um, through the preaching of the word in Mankato as well. So this is just a gift to be here. Um, Can I pray for us one more time and we'll jump into the text here this morning. Father, we praise you for your goodness and for your kindness towards us. We thank you that you are here with us in this moment. God, we pray that we might cling to you. We pray that we might run to you as our refuge. We pray that we might know you as we um, have never known you before. Would you open up your word to us? Would you unfold it? Would you remind us that there are indeed wondrous things in your law that we just confess that in the times that we don't see wondrous things, the problem is not the word. The problem is our own hearts. And so would you open up our hearts and help us to delight in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I have already committed a classic error for a preacher And that is not bringing my Bible to the pulpit. And so, here's what I'm going to have to do. There's a bag down there by your feet, right there. Grab me my Bible, and uh, I'm going to read the text, because I don't think the text has been read yet. Looky there. Fantastic. Would you guys flip with me to Psalm chapter 52? Again, that is... Psalm 52 says this. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start this morning off with a question. And the question is this. What makes for a good story? What elements must be present in a good movie or a good book for you to sit back after consuming in its various forms, whether watching or reading, 
and breathe out a sigh of contentment. That was good. There's many answers that you could give to this question. Someone might point to character development. Others might remind us of the importance of a captivating setting or um, the, the world that the characters find themselves in. Still others might highlight the importance of a good villain. I mean, what is Batman without the Joker anyway? But as important as all of these things are, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, argues that when it comes to storytelling, there is one element that rises to the top again and again. Tolkien argues that this is the joy of the happy ending. Let me quote from Tolkien here in his essay titled On Fairy Stories, which all of you should read if you are a nerd like me, at least. Here, Tolkien says this, The consolation of fairy stories is the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn. This happy ending does not deny the existence of catastrophe, of sorrow and failure, but what it does deny is universal and final defeat giving us a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, potent as grief. And in the end, the story as a whole is seen to be but a servant of this miraculous and joyous happily ever after. Isn't that good? I start this way this morning because as we look at Psalm 52 together, things indeed look very bleak we find David facing an absolute disaster. And yet, as we consider this psalm as a whole, we find that somehow, amazingly, David is not devastated. As we press into why this is the case, we will find that underneath it all, David possesses a very key piece of knowledge. Underneath it all, David has learned to cling to the reality that he knows how the story ends. He knows that the turn is coming. He knows that even this crisis will not have the final word. And so as we turn our attention to the text this morning, we're going to find three things. First, in verses 1 through 4, we're going to find the catastrophe. Then in verse 5, we find the turn. And lastly, in verses 6 through 9, we find the happy ending. Let us begin in verse 1 with the catastrophe. Here David begins this psalm with a question. He says, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? What an interesting way to begin a psalm. Right from the beginning, we should note that this psalm has a different flavor than most of the 150 psalms that we're used to. The vast majority of the Psalter is addressed not to an evil man, but to God himself, right? But there's a few key exceptions here, like Psalm chapter 2, and here in Psalm chapter 52, where the Psalter begins by directly addressing an evildoer or a group of evildoers. And here, David zeroes in on one particular evildoer. This man, this one who is boasting, whom he addresses as a mighty man. And this question, of course, leads us to a couple more questions, as often happens in the text. 
Namely, who is this mighty man and what is he boasting of? And in this particular psalm, David does not leave us to guess the answer. He gives us a superscript right before verse 1. So look with me before verse 1 to see this superscript. I should say prescript is what it's called. It says this, To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So here we have our villain. We have our mighty man. And this man's name is Doeg the Edomite. And we can read all about this evil man's exploits back in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. I want to just give you a summary of what's happening here. In these chapters, David is on the run. He has just found out for certain that King Saul wants him dead. And so he and a small company of men have fled from the town of Gibeah with very little provisions. Now, because it's uh, a thousand years before Christ was born, convenience stores were hard to come by in this day, okay? So where would you go when you were low on food, low on provisions? You would go and seek hospitality, right? You would go and and find help from somebody else, someone who was willing to lend you a helpful hand. And the first place that King David stops is this place called Nob. The really interesting thing about Nob is it's actually a city of priests, meaning that there was 85 priests and all of their families and all of their belongings all gathered in this little town. And that's the first place that David stops, And David approached a particular priest named Ahimelech for help, asking for food and for weapons. And we learn here that Ahimelech, on his part, is a little bit suspicious of this. It's a little bit fishy that that David, who's supposed to be a commander in Saul's army, has come with kind of this ragtag group um, with very little provisions, and it it seems like he's kind of running out of town. Ahimelech kind of picks up on this just a little bit. And yet, as we press into this chapter, Ahimelech, in the end, ends up helping David. He gives him five loaves of holy bread to eat and the sword of Goliath, which is pretty awesome, right? Now, perhaps without knowing it, Ahimelech has just become guilty of aiding and abetting an enemy of the state. King Saul wanted David dead, And by his actions, Ahimelech has essentially just said, hey, I'm with that guy, right? I'm with David. I'm I'm helping him and and not Saul. Now, this could be absolutely disastrous, but only if word of what Ahimelech has actually done gets back to King Saul. But before this chapter closes, we read this. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So now the stage is set. Ahimelech has helped David, and this man Doeg was there lurking in the shadows, watching all of this happen. And as we turn the page to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, we find King Saul doing what King Saul does best, throwing himself a massive pity party. Why? 
Because so far, David has given him the slip. And so he whines and he sulks because he cannot get his way. He says, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of Yahweh for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So at Saul's lowest moment, when he is looking for a fall man, Doeg the despicable steps up and he says, I know something. I I saw David. Ahimelech was helping him. He gave him provision. He gave him the sword of Goliath. And what happens next should make our stomachs churn because in his fury, Saul summons not just Ahimelech, but the entire city of priests to come before the throne. But it doesn't stop there because after questioning Ahimelech, he orders every single one of these priests to be put to death. But the text tells us that in response to this order, not a man moved. Saul's servants were more righteous than he was. And so what does he do when his servants won't listen to him? He turns again to his trusty informant, Doeg, and he says, you do it. You do it. You pick up the sword and strike down the priests. And Doeg the Edomite did. He turned and struck down the priests and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. This is the mighty man of verse 1 of Psalm 52. What he boasts over, is not a victory over an armed opponent, but the slaughter of the weak, the weaponless, and the unprepared. As we open this psalm and read verse 1, and we, we hear this question, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? We are meant to hear David's mocking tone. What a mighty man you've shown yourself to be murdering those who cannot fight back. What an accomplishment, David says. And in the face of evil, David does not stay silent. That's what we see here. But instead, he talks back to evil. That's what I love about this. He talks back to evil. He boasts against the boaster. And look at how he boasts. Look at the rest of verse 1. What is what is? David boasting in the face of this kind of evil. He says this, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. How does David move from considering this act of atrocity to boasting suddenly about God's love? Here's what I think is happening. This sudden insertion of God's love in the face of great evil reminds David and reminds Doeg and reminds us that though a dark cloud has settled over the sky of David's life, he knows that the sun is going to outlast this cloud. 
He knows that there's something that lasts longer than this despicable act, and that is the everlasting love of God. Then, and only then, does David turn his attention back to Doeg. Look at verse 3. He says, you love evil more than good. David makes it clear where this wickedness has come from. Long before Doeg committed this atrocity, atrocious things had already gripped Doeg's heart. This great wickedness was no accident, David says. Doeg loved evil. His heart was filled with disordered loves and his mind was set on disordered thoughts. He loved what God had forbidden and he hated what God says is good. And eventually these wicked desires spilled over into these unspeakable acts. This is exactly what we're warned against, each of us, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, when it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We need to hear this, brothers and sisters, because all of us, all of us are capable of great evil. If we go on filling our minds with wicked thoughts and our hearts with disordered desires, these things will eventually give birth to evil and sometimes to unspeakable acts. We must guard our hearts. We must keep them with all vigilance. But David doesn't stop here. David spends the vast majority of these four verses not speaking against Doeg's violence or even his cowardice, but instead focused on the wickedness of Doeg's speech. Look at verse 2. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Doeg says, or David says, rather, Doeg, long before you put a sword in your hand, you unsheathed a far more deadly weapon, your tongue. Do you guys realize that the power of the tongue? Do you remember what, what James says in chapter 2? He says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Think about it like this. In the past decade, you realize that nearly 15 million acres of the state of California have burned? Isn't that a crazy number? 15 million acres. That's well over an eighth of the total state in the last decade. It's an interesting thought, though. I just wonder how many of these fires began with the flick of a cigarette. Ever wonder that? These massive blazes begin with this tiny little spark. And I say this because as David sees the devastation happening around him, he wants us to consider the reality that all of this, everything that's unfolding before him, began not with the flick of a cigarette, but with the flick of a tongue. Do you see that? Before Doeg ever picked up a sword, he did the damage with his tongue. We need to remember 
the power that we wield with our tongues. The power to kill. The power to give life. The power to build up. The power to tear down. The power to cause others to despair. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must steward this great and potentially terrible gift that we've been given. We must heed well the words of Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is profitable for building up. Let that be our filter. Is this going to build up? Let me dare not say it if it won't. Now, we might easily preach a whole message on this one point. I would love to keep going on this. But we need to return for a moment now to David himself. Let's consider the facts. David is on the run. He's being hunted by the most powerful man in the kingdom. He has little food and provisions. He has an adversary named Doeg bent on his destruction. And now David has just discovered that he has set off a chain reaction that has led to the death of 85 priests and their families. And I just want to pose the question at this crucial juncture. How is it that David doesn't just lay down and die at this point? I mean, how doesn't he just kind of throw his hands up and surrender and say, say here, here I am? How does he not despair? How does he get out of bed in the morning realizing that this kind of devastation has happened and that he's been partially responsible for it? I mean, how many men and women do you and I know that have been absolutely debilitated by far lesser catastrophes? How can David keep going? Where does he find the strength to talk back to evil? Answer, look with me at verse 5, where we discover the turn. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The one reason that David is not utterly devastated by what has just happened is because he knows the end of the story. He knows what's coming. And in many ways, the key word of verse 5 is the word forever. You see that there? There would be no turn if it were not for David's consideration of eternity. And this eternal perspective changes absolutely everything. And we see this idea expressed over and over again in the Psalms. Think about Psalm 73. This is one of the most classic examples. Here the psalmist spends 15 verses talking about how he is dripping with envy or covetousness, if you want to use that term here, as he looks at the prosperity of the wicked. It seems that God has blessed them at every turn, and yet the righteous and their families seem to just be struggling just to get by. And the Psalter is saying, what's up with that, God? Why is this the case? And he says, my feet had almost slipped, like I'd almost given up entirely. But then see what it says in verse 16 of Psalm 73. It says this, but when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In other words, he picked up the lenses of eternity and put them on, and he remembered that judgment is coming. And then he says this, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Brothers and sisters, if you want to live a hopeless life in Christ, let me tell you how to do that. If you want to be devastated and debilitated by your circumstances, it's really simple. All we have to do is to start to believe that this world is all there is. Let yourself believe that the horrific headlines will have the final word. Let yourself believe that wicked men will go unpunished. Let yourself believe that all this tragedy in our lives and in our families and in our world is meaningless. But brothers and sisters, I proclaim to you this morning that this is not the case. This is not the end of the story. Evil does not win. David knew it, and we should know it, brothers and sisters. As one of my favorite liturgies puts it, we declare that evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word. Do you believe that? God's steadfast love will outlast this and every other atrocity. God's righteousness will not let injustice go unpunished. God's jealousy for his people will not let these tauntings go unanswered for long. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. David can leave it to the wrath of God because he believes in the sovereignty and the goodness of his Savior. He believes that this world is not all there is. There's another world coming. And as J.R.R. Tolkien put it, there is joy beyond the walls of this world as potent as grief. And that joy is coming. Do you believe that? It's coming. By God's grace, we can endure in the face of great tragedy because we know the end of the story. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. The turn is coming. And this brings us to our final point. In verses 6 through 9, we find the happy ending. Look with me at verse 8. David says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. David's choice of imagery is absolutely brilliant here. He compares himself to a green olive tree. Why an olive tree? Because David wants us to consider the longevity of the righteous, and there is no better example of longevity in nature than the olive tree. If you want to ask how, just how long can an olive tree live, it's kind of interesting, as I was doing research on this, you get wildly different answers. You know why that's the case? 
because olive trees outlast generations of men. We aren't sure how long they can actually last because no one's ever seen it happen. But the guess, the best guess, is that they can last at least 1,500 years under the right conditions. 1,500 years. Isn't that unbelievable? That is, it's really possible that an olive tree could have stood in Palestine when our Lord walked the earth. And we're really not too far off at that point. This is what David is getting at here in verse 8. He says, I'm not going anywhere. I am stable. I am secure. I am well supplied. And this reminds me so much of Psalm chapter 1, doesn't it? Where it says, the one who meditates on God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. To wrap everything up, David looks out. He not only speaks to Doeg, but he also comments on his own life. And he says, in the end, I'm going to flourish. I'm going to be like a green olive tree. But Doeg, that worker of evil, he's going to be uprooted, right? He's going to be pulled up from the ground like a weed on a summer day just after it rained, right? This is true. And why is this the case? Why will Doeg not stand in the day of judgment? Answer, because he has the wrong roots. Listen to verses 6 through 7. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Doeg trusted in his riches and in the end, God will pull him from this earth again as easily as you and I pull up a weed from the garden. In the day of judgment, We might offer riches and lands, all of them that we could possibly imagine to God, but David assures us us that it will not be enough to save our souls. At the end of all things, the judge of the universe will not be bribed. It's what it says in Proverbs 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. But compare this for just a moment, with the life of David. Compare this with the roots of David. What are his roots? What is the anchor for his soul? From the beginning to the end of this psalm, it has been set on one thing and one thing only. Listen again to verse 8. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. David has looked away from himself And he has sunk his roots down deep, not into this world, but into the love of God, into something that will actually last, into something that will stand the test of judgment. Let me close this way. Perhaps you're here this morning, and even as I say these words, you're saying to yourself, Pastor Jordan, you don't know me. You don't know me. I'm more like Doeg than I am like David. All of us have stumbled in what we have said. All of us have been tempted to place our trust in the security of riches. If we are honest here this morning, all of us 
are more like Doeg than we are like David, okay? That's just truth. And so the question becomes, what is the hope for us? What is the hope for us, people who, again, have set our hearts and our hopes in things other than Jesus Christ? And as I close, I would invite you to consider these words of George Herbert. He says this about our Savior, Jesus Christ. All ye who pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me. Brothers and sisters, we can say that we are like a green olive tree only because Christ hung on a tree for us. We must see that we too deserve the same fate as Doeg the despicable, but on the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, catch this, was treated like Doeg in our place. Do you get that? The spotless lamb of God was slaughtered in our place as if he were as wicked as Doeg the Edomite. We stand because Christ was broken. We are stable because Jesus Christ was torn from his tent. We are secure through faith because the son of God was uprooted for us. This is the love of God displayed most clearly on the cross of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, if you have not yet sunk the roots of your faith and your life down deep into Jesus Christ, if you have not yet repented of your sins and looked to Jesus alone and looked away from your own righteousness unto him, I plead with you this morning, don't wait another day. Look to Christ. Look to the abundant pardon that is found on the cross. He will not despise you as you turn to him in humility. Turn to Jesus Christ and learn to say, together with David, once and for all, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God because of what Christ has done for me. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we confess before you freely that not a single one of us deserves to stand before your throne on our own righteousness. God, not a single one of us is good enough to enter into your holy presence. Lord, there is none like you And yet you in your goodness and in your love have made a way for sinners like us to be cleansed. And so Lord, together this morning, we celebrate and we cling together to the Lamb of God who was slaughtered for us. God, help us to rejoice in the fact that you loved us enough to crucify Christ on our behalf, for your glory and for our joy. God, help us to look to you. Help us to cling to the cross here together this morning. We praise you as we remember the cross, that this is not the end of the story, that Christ has risen from the grave. 
So help us to continue now to worship your great and holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.